From July 2020 through January of 2021, David E. Richardson led the Office of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction at Department of Homeland Security, a roughly 500-person organization charged with safeguarding the homeland from chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and health security threats. Before that, David Richardson was a contractor with Department of Homeland Security at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office, a predecessor organization to the Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office, which was formed by federal law in 2018. Although this was Richardson's first experience at the highest levels of government serving as Assistant Secretary, he has a lifetime of leadership experience behind him serving more than 20 years in six deployments as a Marine Corps officer, including a 2006 deployment to Ramadi and Fallujah, during which deployment he was awarded a Bronze Star with Combat Distinguishing Device. Richardson is also an artist, a painter and novelist, who regularly shows his works at galleries in New York City, D.C., and at places in Florida. Today, he joins us to answer an important question. Whether the United States is safer today from a weapon of mass destruction attack than it was 20 years ago in the year 2001. David E. Richardson, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you, John. Thank you, David. Good to be here. So let's start with that first question. Based on your time as the Assistant Secretary of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction, Do you believe the USA is safer today from a WMD attack than we were 20 years ago? Yeah, thanks for starting off with the softball, John. Um, Look, I think think the last four years, i.e. before January 20th, we were were getting there. I think um, President Trump and his administration was taking us that direction. Uh, as far as WMDs, um, uh, look, it's hard to say. Uh, for every measure or every measure the enemy takes, you know, we have a countermeasure. Um, I'm not so sure uh, as far as where I came from at Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction. Uh, there's really a lot of focus on countering WMDs. I heard a lot of talk and, and I tried to get some action. Uh, but as far as moving the ball forward and, and things like securing the cities and biowatch, um, I know those are somewhat esoteric terms. Um, I, I would say slightly uh, simply because um, we've done something, uh, but it's not nearly uh, where we could be. So, as far as the money we've spent on it, I'm not sure if uh, we've got the dividends for the money we spent, although I do think we're slightly safer overall. And I, and I think it's kind of a up and down type of thing. You know, I know that the threat uh, recently went off of uh, terrorists to major threat actors. Um, you know, but look, major threat actors uh, – you know, that, that's not very well defined regarding uh, how they would use WMD. So I, I would say it's it's kind of uh, starts and fits. Um, 
uh, up and down. Overall, I think we are, though. Yes. Following up with that, let me get a little bit more precise. What was the problem that you were tasked with solving at this Office of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction? You spoke of there not being a lot of focus. Those were your words. What was the problem or the issue that, that office was created to address? Well, originally, the office was known as the D Domestic Nuclear Detection Office, and I was there for five years as a contractor. Uh, the, the organization didn't instill a whole lot of confidence in me uh, regarding whether uh, we were actually moving forward at a at a uh, satisfactory rate at detecting uh, uh, nuclear uh, devices and that type of thing used by terrorists. Uh, and then it became countering weapons of mass destruction, uh, which covers five broad areas. Uh, uh, there's, you know, nuclear uh, detection, there's uh, radiological detection, there's biochemical warfare, or biological warfare, uh, there's, there's chemical warfare, and then there's a uh, two other pieces, uh, food, agriculture, and veterinarian, and then the fifth one was uh, rad nuke being one. The fifth one is uh, essentially... Uh, health security so you know essentially I, I was i volunteered for the position uh to go back and essentially ensure they were able to do their mission and uh the staff uh with my encouragement essentially uh did a analysis of their mission and their mission sets and told me we could probably do the mission Maybe 60% uh, when you apply a stoplight to their mission essential tasks, which is what they would have to do to be able to do their mission completely. They weren't green in anything. It was uh, They were mostly red in some cases and yellow in others. So my job was to essentially help them get their arms around their mission, which I kind of figured when I went in that they didn't have their arms around their mission. Uh, and my uh, gut feelings about that were correct. So that's what I was sent there to do and then to get them to be able to do uh, their mission. You mentioned detection. In your statement at the Open, you said securing the cities in BioWatch. What are these programs? So uh, the federal government, uh, via DHS, via Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office uh, gives to state and local governments funding so they can essentially develop infrastructure to detect biological threats um, uh, as well as radiological and uh, nuclear threats. Uh, so it's two pieces there. Um, they have something called Securing the Cities, which is essentially focused on the radiological nuclear threat. And then there was something called BioWatch, which was ideally uh, focused on uh, biological detection. Um, we, for the most part, uh, we kind of left it up to the state and local uh, governments or municipalities to kind of figure that out. Um and I think to varying degrees, we assisted them with something other than uh, funding, in other words, expertise. 
Um, so that's what that is. I think it's in 15 uh, uh, cities across the nation, uh, and I know they were they were looking at expanding it. There's criteria to have that. I visited Chicago, uh, which has pretty robust capability. I visited New York, which has a really pretty robust capability. Uh, my disappointment was to essentially see. Uh, look, we gave them money, but it didn't seem like we were providing them very much as far as expertise. Um, and perhaps that's because I think in the case of New York, uh, maybe they didn't really want our expertise. In the case of Chicago, uh, I didn't get the feeling we had engaged with them very decisively. Uh, you know, I, I call it um, uh, a give a shit factor, and I, and I, I kind of felt that our, that our at CWMD our, our give a shit factor for supporting uh, securing the cities and BioWatch was pretty low, other than giving folks the money. Uh, the expertise piece, which is arguably as important as the money piece, seemed to have fallen by the wayside sometime in the past. You mentioned this uh, program, BioWatch, and it kind of calls to mind a video game. Uh, it's got a really catchy title. I almost can picture someone uh, at a command switch or a big board playing a, an interactive game, a real-time game where things are happening and there's responses taking place. I'm sure that mental image doesn't really describe the program. What is it? How does it function? So um, I, I can't get into too you know, much detail because it is some, some of it's classified, but essentially they have sensors uh, that are, you know, imagine a target and the city is ground zero. I think the sensors are, are, are strategically placed along uh routes of ingress for biological weapons. And that's where they're, they're placed. And essentially folks go out and check these, this equipment, uh, I believe it's once a day or once a week. I think, I think it's every 12 or 24 hours. I can't recall the exact time, but essentially they, they monitor uh, these detection devices for uh, biological agents uh, that could be being used against the population. The challenge is uh, that I think that program started out in 2005, um, and you know they were limited to, uh, or they limited it to detecting a certain number of uh, biological agents, and they've essentially never updated it since then. There's been some talk of updating it, uh, kind of in the it's in the acquisition stage. Uh, that seems to be very slow as things tend to be in the federal government. Um, so that's what it is. And, and of course we give money or the federal government gives money to municipalities. I just mentioned so that they can hire people to monitor uh, these sites for uh, potential biological weapons. And when an alarm goes off, you know, we'll get a phone call and that type of thing. It's, it's not, it's not as integrated as it could ideally be. Um, and we're probably way behind the power curve on that. Once again, once again, that goes not to the money part of it, that's to the expertise uh, piece of it and how we would actually integrate it. So it, it would be somewhat like a, a state-of-the-art uh, system where you could monitor it remotely and that sort of thing. From military background, it almost sounds like a ground sensor platoon. 
that we had in the Marine Corps. Usually they were under the control of the intelligence shop at a battalion. Now there'd be a lieutenant platoon commander and he'd have ground sensor Marines and they'd place these sensors. We use them in Afghanistan. It kind of sounds like an intelligence function, this whole office. Is that, I mean, is that what it is? Is it integrated into an intelligence community function or is it something separate? Ideally, yes. Uh, you know, once again, I mean, you, you can you can fund an intelligence shop as is funded at CWMD, um, but look, the, the the people in the intelligence section would have to or shop would have to take the initiative to reach across uh, the intelligence community and do more than gather. Uh, information. They would have to do some sort of analysis. Otherwise, you're just passing on information. Um, and then they would have to share it with uh, other organizations of uh, something like CWMD. I, I didn't see a whole lot of that. I, 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 that's, that's one of the, they call it stovepipes in the federal government. Uh, and by the way, when I first joined DNDO eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, one of the questions to, for me was, if I, as a contractor, could break down, uh, help break down some of these stovepipes. Um, I fought that monster for about five years. I don't think I really got anywhere with it. Of course, I wasn't a Fed. And then when I went back in as the assistant secretary, it's definitely something I was working on and worked, worked on right up until I left. Because, uh, you know, we are in pretty, you know, the federal government tends to be bureaucratic. Um, bureaucracies have a tendency to um, uh, serve themselves uh, and it doesn't, uh, to serve yourself, it doesn't really take a whole lot of reaching across the aisle, even within your own organization. So I saw, I didn't see a whole lot of intelligence capability and what I would, you know, I would rely on people in the intelligence community gather information and tell me why it matters to me. I remember being briefed frequently on a lot of data and only because I had some background in the military. And then of course, had I had been at DNDO that I could process it myself kind of in my head uh, and kind of figure out what it meant. Uh, but we weren't there uh, yet. Uh, regarding kind of putting that information together and driving uh, CWMD. Look, I mean, in, in the in the military, we used to go on a patrol, and ideally, like in Iraq, patrols are intelligence-driven. You paint some type of picture of the enemy with the data you get. As far as I could tell, we were taking in data, but we weren't able to paint a picture, so we really weren't able to drive things like our operations and our acquisitions and our policy through the intelligence shop at CWMD. And I doubt it has changed very much because it's probably been in that state for years. And you mentioned before uh, you got into the discussion of the intelligence community and coordinating across it, you mentioned one of your jobs is biological uh, awareness, countering biological threats and countering health security threats. So I wonder if as the pandemic emerges around this time last year as the most pressing national security threat, if your office had any role in it um, or if you found it to be handicapped perhaps by its inability uh, to coordinate properly across the intelligence community. Oh, indeed. There, uh, there was something called... Uh NBIC, and it stood for, help me out here, John, what, the, what does that stand for? 
National Biosurveillance Integration Center. Right. So that that NBIC, National Biological Integration Center, um, they actually uh, got information regarding COVID. I believe it was either 31 December 2019 or the first day of 2020. Uh, and they made some attempt to share the information. And, and, and they're rightly proud that they had made an attempt to share the information. How far across the intelligence community? I don't know how far it got. Um, and of course, it would be only internal to the federal government because I've never really seen the federal government uh, regarding intelligence share it, uh, you know, uh, beyond the federal government. So it kind of it's born there and it kind of dies there. Whether that informed the White House, I don't know. I don't think that I don't think the gears were in place to do that. Uh, I don't think there's been um, there's been support to build uh, something like NBIC for a while, uh, and they and they did build it. Uh, what they do with the information, I never really could figure out, other than in some manner share it with some people in the federal government. Whether they shared it with the municipalities or not. I never really got my arms around that. I I asked the question. I seem to get very nebulous answers regarding that. So CWMD knew, uh, and I don't, but I don't know if that helped the American people uh, any or not. And then, you know, one of my first questions was about the origin of uh, COVID. Um, I I never got a clear answer on that either. Um, uh, And and actually dug into it. so, yes, there is an intelligence capability and there was something like NBIC uh, uh, that kind of it was actually in the intelligence shop. Whether it, as I just said, whether it did the American people any good, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I kind of doubt that it did. What's the error there, in your opinion, then, on the side of NBIC or what would you recommend? Um, well, first of all, Look, it, it takes some initiative and uh, some savvy and some determination to plug yourself in across the federal government. I know when I went there, I, I did a lot of outreach, and, and essentially folks were surprised to see me. Um, uh, no one really knows. If, you've never, if, if you're listening, you've never heard of countering weapons of mass destruction um, as an office within DHS or CWMD, it doesn't surprise me a bit uh, because nobody really knows what they do. Uh, that's the fault of the organization. Uh, and regarding intelligence information, that's the fault of an intelligence organization. It's, it's like saying, I'm talking, but nobody's listening. Uh, that may be the case. And if you're talking and nobody's listening, uh, you should find some listeners because if you're talking and and we're paying you and nobody's listening, uh, I think uh, the euphemism for that is useless. Uh, so I think it takes some initiative, uh, some, term, to some determination and some insight uh, that you're actually there to do outreach to the intelligence community. Uh, but, you know, look, you know, I think there's a there's a handful of Marines in the audience and also here on the uh, 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 in, in the virtual uh, studio. Uh, I, folks kind of always tease Marines about being jarheads, not being that smart, uh, that type of thing. Uh, 
But, you know, I've never met a Marine, I don't think, that doesn't have some degree of initiative. And that's kind of what that would take. Uh, and I didn't see that at all. Uh, I saw very little initiative in uh, CWMD uh, from the top down uh, to reach out and to make things happen. I saw a lot of talk uh, and I saw some halfway efforts. And that might be from being beat down in the in the past when you try. I don't know. It's a, it's a they're always trying to solve the morale issue. Uh, I spoke to my a friend of mine about that, and uh, I, I that that was their main focus. Their morale, their morale was low, and they they, they kind of got in a huddle, and they would all look at each other, and we were supposed to be talking about the mission, and they would say, "Well, our morale is low." That's kind of an unsolvable um, mission. The guy uh, that replaced. Uh, my predecessor, one before me, was sent there to essentially babysit and to fix the morale. Uh, as far as I can tell, it was never – people might have somehow felt better about themselves, but the morale issue, uh, I think, is unfixable. Uh, so I focused on the mission. Uh, and whether that improved the morale or not, I really didn't care. I, I, I wanted to get to – could we do our mission? Did we know what our mission was? And uh, if we weren't doing it, where were we uh, at regarding that? There's a book that came out not quite a year ago, or maybe just around a year, uh, by George Friedman uh, called The Storm Before the Calm. And in it, he says that the problem with the federal government is not that it's too large. Uh, he says that the federal bureaucracy actually stopped growing in the 80s and that I think in terms of manpower, it's roughly the same size as it was during the Nixon administration. He says the problem is that it's incoherent and fragmented, that there are experts in so many different locations, each with their own piece of ownership of the problem, and that it's impossible because of that sort of diffusion of expertise to come together with a coherent view of how to solve it. Uh, does that jive with what you saw and experienced? Yeah, he probably understates. Uh, um, of course, he needs to sell books. And he can't use the F word and that type of thing. Um, so he's probably understating uh, the problem. Uh, <laughs> lack of accountability was legion. Uh, not sure why. Uh, I, I recall asking, I, I remember when I first became a contractor, I saw a GAO report, a government accountability office report. And I picked it up and it was about DNDO. And I read through it, kind of looked at it. So hmm, I'm going to go find out what we're doing about this. So I walked around and I would ask folks like, look, we made four recommendations and where are we on number three? And I, I, I repeatedly heard the GAO uh, doesn't really matter. We don't really care what the GAO says. Later on, I, I saw that we formulated answers and ways forward for the GAO uh, so that we could send it to them and tell them we were doing something. And in very few cases did I actually see us do something about it. Um, there was far more emphasis put on things like uh, award ceremonies, um, um, leadership classes, which uh, befuddled me, by the way. Um, uh, more emphasis placed on um, uh, feel-good uh, type of things that never seemed to make anybody feel better, 
than there was on actually doing the mission. There, there, there was, as I've already said, lack of initiative, lack of accountability, um, very low give a shit factor. Uh, but there was a high give a shit factor in one regard, which was I'll do anything to keep my federal job. Uh, and if you're not aware of what federal employees, particularly in the D.C. region, make, you should look it up. You will be surprised. So I can I can hear that you were obviously a Marine. You were a Marine for more than 20 years. You still speak of it so fondly. Before you got to Washington, D.C., you were a field artillery officer. Is that right? That's correct. And you and David Craig, our editor, actually met in the field or downrange. Is that right, too? Yes, I was completely naked when I met David. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that. but (laughs) You might have been in your boxers or something, though. I think I I was out. I was out back shaving, so I'd taken all my clothes off, knowing that it was it would completely um, uh, it would it would turn me into a legend in the Iraqi's mind. <laughs> so t- take take us there, David Craig. We'll call you Top, since we've got two Daves in the room. You were a master sergeant in the Marine Corps. Take us to this first meeting with uh, Dave Richardson. Um, I. Th- I don't. I think we may have met him the night we came in, but I mostly remember the next day after you know we because I think uh, they they kind of let us get settled in and get some sleep. Uh, but uh, I get up. Uh, one of our lieutenants had worked with Dave uh, when they were at uh, GW, I think, or Georgetown, and um, he he was reminding me about the artwork that Dave had done and of course I have an interest in art so I approach Dave and say can you tell me about your art and he was completely shocked uh couldn't believe that that question was asked <laughs> and then he quickly went to say uh yeah let's not talk about that so <laughs> That was a dead subject on, on impact. <laughs> but <laughs> so he may, he may, Dave went, may want to elaborate on that a little bit. You guys were the only two guys in Iraq talking about art. Art, yeah. Oh, it might have been. I, I don't know. Look, I, I know that at the time, you know, I was I was showing at a gallery. I can't remember what it was. I think it was in D.C. Um, yeah, it's, it's not really, it's, it's not something I talk a whole lot about, um, even to other artists. I don't really, uh, I think, I think I probably talked more about it to John Waters than, than most folks, uh, particularly because we drank together. Um, and maybe that's part of it. Booze was officially not allowed in Iraq, although folks used to send me Listerine and it tasted a lot like <laughs> bourbon. Um, so I, I was, I drank a lot of Listerine while I was there. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I, I did. I, I remember David said, "Hey, I know you. I, I know. I know where you're from. I know you from an interview you did with Armed Forces uh, TV, and it was from an art show that I had just finished before departing for Iraq, and that's what it was about. So yes, that's how we met, and, and, and David either recognized me for that, or the lieutenant that he knew uh, had discussed uh, my uh, other thing that I do uh, with him." So two art-interested Marines are meeting in Iraq at a pretty critical time 
in our engagement there. It's 2006, right? I mean, what's happening on the ground? Well, well, what had happened on the ground was in 2004, there was a battle of Fallujah. They kind of, they kind of squirted them out towards the Syrian border and they kind of settled in Ramadi. And for about two years, uh, they duked it out with them in, in Ramadi and uh, the environs of Ramadi. And then uh, uh, I can't remember which army unit it was came on and it came in and they, they started putting a pounding on them in Ramadi. And so once again, they, they kind of squeezed them back into Fallujah. So as David was coming, as his top was coming in, uh, Fallujah was getting hot again. That was the summer of 2006. Yeah, I think the first day that we actually went out in town together, you took us with your team while we were doing the right seat, left seat, and to look at an ID site or something. And we got shot at, of course, right away. I th- some it was funny because someone thought it was a sniper, but I, you know, you could kind of tell it was just someone with an AK shooting at us. Um, Everybody's a sniper. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> a if there was, if it was a sniper, you would know it. Yeah, <laughs> there wouldn't be a debate as to whether or not you were being shot at by a sniper, really. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was really it was really hot, uh, and Dave uh really captivated our team with his stories of Ramadi prior to getting to Fallujah as well because it was really hot when he was there and it was yeah it was just unusual almost coincidental actually it wasn't coincidental i think they moved Dave's battalion to Fallujah cuz they were one of the better performing iraqi battalions so as Ramadi was cooling down a bit and Fallujah was heating up, they sent Dave's battalion to Fallujah. And that's thus, you know, he ended up being in the heat of the action. And uh, and then as well, our team that followed him. Yeah, I remember being in Ramadi and every morning I'd wake up and of course I'd go in and find my intel guy. I'd say, what's going on? And one of my favorite intel reports, uh, my, my very favorite one was about the midgets and placing IEDs, uh, which I'm still fascinated by. Um, Midget hookers and, and, and midgets that re- in place in IEDs I have a passion for that. Anyway, um, and I remember he told me that there were so so many insurgents in Ramadi that the insurgent hotels, otherwise known as the locals, were putting up no vacancy signs. In other words, <laughs> we don't have any more room for you. Um, and there, there was a couple of shockers in Ramadi. Uh, I think, I think twice they blew up an M1 Abrams tank. Um, and for for the audience who's never seen an M1 Abrams tank, um, imagine uh, a large bulldozer without the without the uh, uh, scoop on the front. Rather, you have a large cannon on it, um, and it take it would take a lot to blow that up. And they were blowing them up. Um, and sometimes the tank crews would survive, um, but of course there was there was follow-on attacks. They were trying to hit the tank crews. They were they were climbing out. So it was it was um, it was a rather harrowing place. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been out of the Marine Corps for for seven or eight years now, and 
You know, every morning I kind of wake up wondering if the commandant's going to recall me because the country's in a crisis. Um, I'm actually getting to the point where it's probably not going to happen. Um, well, I suppose but, you were recalled uh, to you were recalled to uh, the Office of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction. Well, I was. I, 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 that's true. I, I finally did get recalled. President Trump, although he didn't call me directly on the phone, uh, recalled me back to action uh, to work and, with the. This uh, this deployment is interesting for another reason, too, because it becomes the subject for a novel you write. Tell me about that. Uh, the novel's called War Story. Uh, get on Amazon, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I originally started the book to promote my paintings. Uh, and as uh, it was going to be something about painting and war and that type of thing. Really, it, it's kind of a – the first draft was – I wrote it in – 30 days, and I think it was about 600 pages, um, two boxes of cigars. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I wrote the draft, and I spent four years culling through it. Um, and in the end, it was a story about art and war, indeed. Uh, but really, what it ended up being was uh, uh, a, a, a shot at explaining why... Uh, man is fascinated by war, and uh, because war has played a significant part in art, and vice versa, I guess art and war, and war and art more likely. Um, I kind of mesh the two together in my own experience from history uh, of art and warfare, and in my own experience of why man is fascinated by war. So I kind of spun this tale. It's kind of two halves of the story. There's the protagonist, uh, which is a thinly veiled version of Dave Richardson, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, is painting in Washington, D.C. and teaching midshipmen. Imagine that. And then he goes to Camp Lejeune and he's assigned this mission to uh, train and fight alongside the Iraqi army. And on his way, he figures out why man is fascinated with war. Um it's not really a spoiler alert. I will tell you that he, in his own small way, uh, figures it out. But I will tell you, I, I've heard folks kind of pontificate about why man loves war and why war is so popular and all that stuff. I've only heard one person, and it was a the president of one of the colleges at Harvard asked the same question I did. Uh, and she came up with essentially the same answer as I did. But at a much higher level, as in, I think she talked about societies and things like that, where I talked about why people are fascinated by war. She probably had a bigger brain than me, so she could have a much wider view. Uh, but on a, on, a, on, a, on a small and a large scale, we essentially came up with the same answer. And you said it was originally intended to promote your art. And having seen the cover of it, I think your artist prominently featured on it, so it accomplishes that objective. What are you doing right now with your painting, with your art? Um, you know what? I, 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 I have been painting uh, portraits, actually, but they're not portraits is what you think they are. They're essentially stenciled portraits. So I'll take a picture of somebody, or I'll have a picture, and I'll turn it into a stencil. And then I put it on a piece of plywood, shoot holes in it for a random effect. Also effect I picked up in Ramadi, which was, uh, it was, it was, um, uh, littered with 
gunfire. Everything had holes in it. It's a, and Jackson Pollock and his drip paintings have nothing on the randomness of gunfire. Uh, anyway, I shoot holes in them. And then I, I float that piece of plywood, imagine this, uh, above another piece of plywood, or yeah, above another piece of plywood, so you can see through the holes, and then I will put uh, pictures, photographs that I attach there. I'm not going to get into how I attach them um, of the actual subject. So it kind of tells the story of the person uh, behind the portrait. It's almost well. It actually is 3D. Uh, I don't know if you can imagine how I would do that. Uh, so you have a stenciled portrait with shotgun blasts in it. And through the shotgun blast, floated about a half inch down or a quarter inch down, you can see the photographs of the people. Or maybe it's something they uh, made or built or a poem that they wrote or a painting they painted or something like that. So it kind of... Not just the not, it's not just the image of the person, but it tells something more about who they are. And you can also kind of do a time series with it. You, you do a portrait of somebody, say, in their 40s, but then you show them as a young person and maybe as, in my case, a little more aged version of 40. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm working on right now. And where can people see this? Or do you have any plans to show this, this new uh, work you've been on for a while yeah i need to photograph it and put it on my website you can go to the website and you can see shotgun paintings there now and i'll get the other ones up in the next in fact i think i'm going to take photographs of the ones i have now and get them up there i did one of anthony hayden guest a friend of mine an artist and a critic uh, or uh, thereabouts uh from new york i really admire anthony uh, and i did one of him i'm gonna get that up on the website here shortly uh, because i'm going to take it to him and we are going to present it to him in New York uh, this spring. So now we're entering the final uh, few questions of the conversation. And I've got three saved rounds I want to offer you before we go. The first, since you've been a leader and you are an artist, what's the one trait you needed as you transitioned from both of those worlds that, in your opinion brought you success? Um, you know, there's, I, I don't really believe in vision, um, but I do believe in starting and finishing something. Um, I remember my teacher in high school, my art teacher, uh, it was one of the few classes I made straight A's in. And the Mr. Baddock told me he always gave me an A, not because I was a great artist, which is kind of a backhanded comment, was because I always finished what I started. Uh, and I think that's kind of, uh, look, that was kind of my critique of CWMD. They couldn't finish anything they started. That part of that comes from an artist mentality, but it was also something I learned in the Marine Corps to follow through on things so that you at least can get to the after action port. So you can critique yourself so you can do it better next time. And if you never get to the end of something, if you never complete something, Regardless of whether you're dissatisfied with it or not, um, you you can't have – I think developing a vision comes from completing things uh, 
and, and learning to envision it as completed so that you can get there and critique it. Uh, and it might, you might do things cyclically, but you have to at least run a cycle of it uh, before you can get better at it. Does that answer mm -hmm. your question? That does. It's uh, something David Craig and I have talked about before, not in the art uh, construct, but in other areas. Next question, I want to know your favorite book, and the only condition is that it can't be your own. You know, um, my my very favorite book, and this is kind of fuddy-duddy, it's old-fashioned, uh, but I'm going to name, I'm going to buy a sailboat in the next year, or a canoe. Um, <laughs> big difference there. Uh, my, my boy <laughs> likes fishing. I think he's going he's gonna to get a vote. Uh, but regardless of whether it's a sailboat or a canoe, uh, I'm going to name it Magwitch. Um, because my very favorite character in literature is Abel Magwitch. Um, and that is from the Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations, which is my very, very favorite novel. Dickens your favorite author or is there someone else? You know, I think I like Dick. I think Dickens is my favorite author. Um, I like John Williams. Um, Stoner. Yeah, Stoner. But but Charles Dickens is probably my favorite. It used to be Mark Twain until I figured out that Mark Twain was jealous of Charles Dickens. And then <laughs> because he because 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 Twain, who I admire, and I, I, my boy is named Robert Finn after Huckleberry Finn. So you can tell that I admire Mark Twain, but when he showed his ass uh, and revealed his jealousy of Charles Dickens, I realized, hmm, there must be something very good about Charles Dickens. Later on, I found out that Sigmund Freud's favorite book was David Copperfield. Uh, apparently, there's a lot hmm. of failed psychology in it. Hmm. I never knew that. Last question. What is the hardest thing you have ever done? Um, writing a novel is the hardest thing I've ever done intellectually. Um, well, let's, 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 let's pull back on the intellectual piece. Writing a novel is the hardest <laughs> thing I've ever done with my mind. Um, <laughs> the hardest physical thing I've ever done is to become a Marine Corps martial arts instructor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I, I detail that in the novel because the, the character who's somewhat similar to me becomes a Marine Corps martial arts instructor and it nearly kills him. Uh, I was 40 years old, Camp Lejeune, it was hot and it was tough. So that is the hardest physical thing I've ever done and the book is the hardest thing I've ever done with my brain. Got it. Well, I think that means our time's up. Uh, Dave Richardson, thanks for joining me and David Craig today on Hot Wash. We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, John. Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. 